Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. One of the more notorious stories of Israel's second and most famous king, King David, is his affair with Bathsheba. While the army was off at war, David was moping around his palace. One evening, he walked up to the roof and he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. He sent his messengers to get her, and then he slept with her. A short time later, Bathsheba told David that he had gotten her pregnant. She couldn't pass the baby off as her husband's because her husband Uriah was off at war. David had an idea. He would send for her husband Uriah to come back from war and sleep with her, and then no one would know that this wasn't his child. When Uriah came back to town, he came to the palace, but he was so anxious to get back to the battlefield with his comrades that he and his servants slept outside the palace, refusing to go home and to make love with his wife. Despite Uriah's loyalty as a faithful soldier, David sent Uriah to the front lines with instructions that the army was to withdraw and leave Uriah high and dry. Uriah, as you might expect, was killed on the battlefield. When the time of mourning was over, David brought Bathsheba into the palace to be his wife. His ploy had worked, so he thought. But God had revealed what David had done to the prophet Nathan. When Nathan confronted David, he did so by telling him an anecdote about a rich man who had tons of sheep and a poor man who only had one that he treated like his own child. When a traveler came to visit the rich man, the rich man didn't kill one of his sheep for a nice meal. Instead, he took the poor man's only lamb. David became so angry at the rich man and said, quote, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. End quote. Nathan then told David that he was the rich man in the story. David's scandal had been revealed, and he immediately felt ashamed. Nathan pronounced a harsh judgment on David. Calamity would fall on his household. Someone close to him would sleep with his very own wife. When David confessed his sin, Nathan immediately responded by saying, quote, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. End quote. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been focusing on the line from the Nicene Creed, which says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So far, we've been highlighting the idea of one Catholic or universal church by talking about the mystical body of the church. And when I say mystical body, I mean that all Christians of all time are connected together. In the last episode, we talked about this idea of a collective treasury of the church, whereby our works benefit each other. For example, I can do an act of charity or pray for someone who is in purgatory or someone in heaven can pray for me. If you haven't listened to that last episode, you may want to do that before listening to this one, because today we're going to talk about one of the most misunderstood Catholic doctrines, the doctrine of indulgences. And to understand indulgences, it's important to understand the collective treasury of the church. As a Protestant for 39 years, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear the word indulgences is Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. You may have heard something like, Catholics sell indulgences, which grants you a pardon from sin. Or you may be aware that the selling of indulgences was one of the premises for Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, which was the start of the Protestant Reformation. Or many people, including Catholics, think that the Catholic Church has since done away with indulgences. 
All that to say, there's a ton of misunderstanding both inside and outside of Catholicism regarding indulgences. Hopefully, this episode will help to clear it up. First, it's important to understand the Catholic Church's teaching on indulgences, which, by the way, is still very much a practice in the Church. The word indulgence means kindness or favor. In Roman law, an indulgence was used as a release of captivity or punishment. Think about it like how a president might commute or pardon someone's sentence. Paragraph 1471 of the Catechism states, quote, An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints, end quote. To understand indulgence, it's important to first understand what we find in the story of David and Bathsheba. After David sinned, he confessed his sin, and Nathan assured him of God's forgiveness. But Nathan also pronounced a punishment on David. You might be wondering, wait a second, if God forgave David, why did he punish him? Forgiveness does not negate discipline or punishment. One can be forgiven and still receive discipline. Every parent understands this. If my kids do something wrong and apologize, I forgive them. It's not like I kick them out of the house and disown them. But they still have to face the consequences for their actions. As we've talked about during our episodes on salvation, which were episodes 43 through 47 and episode 49, there are some Protestants who think that salvation and justification means God does away with every sin and consequence of sin, past, present, and future. Many believe that once they say the sinner's prayer, it's a done deal, and God doesn't require them to confess their sin. They can't lose their salvation, and God's not going to punish them for any sin they commit because God took on all the punishment on the cross. But this completely ignores scripture. For example, Hebrews 12, 5 through 10 states, quote, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. End quote. When we sin, we are told to confess our sins and God will forgive us, and that forgiveness assures us of salvation and admittance into heaven, but it doesn't negate temporal punishment that God may levy on us as discipline. The second thing we have to understand about indulgences is that they come from the church's treasury, which I talked about in the last episode. The catechism in paragraphs 1475 and 1476, which I've included in the show notes, explains this idea that because there is a communion of saints, which links us Christians on earth, those being purified in purgatory and saints in heaven, we can benefit each other through acts of charity. Think about it like a food bank. Those who have extra food make deposits into the bank for the benefit of those who need food. Now, let's talk a little bit about our good works or charity. Catholics do not believe that our works save us, but we do believe that our good works follow us into heaven. If you listen to episode 46 on purgatory, I talked about 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, which states, quote, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest 
manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." End quote. Revelation 14, 13 through 14 says, quote, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead, who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. End quote. The deeds that follow those who die in the Lord are the deeds or rewards that St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. These are those works of goodness, holiness, and charity that don't get incinerated in the fire when God judges our deeds. But how do we know that these works, which will follow us in heaven, can be used as a sort of charity bank for the benefit of others? Don't my works only remain with me and yours with you? How can I do something that will benefit others? Or how can someone do something that benefits me? Let's consider Colossians 1.24, which says, quote, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, end quote. Now, that phrase, lacking in Christ's afflictions, may seem really odd, and so in the show notes, I've linked to a fantastic episode from Catholic Answers called, Our Indulgences a Scam. They go into detail about what Paul means when he says that Christ's afflictions were lacking something. But the bottom line is that Paul's suffering was benefiting the church. A similar principle can be found in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six, where Paul says, quote, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. End quote. There's this shared treasury among Christians. Here's an analogy. Let's say there's a kid who does a lot for charity. One day he makes a mistake, commits a crime, and ends up in court. The judge says, your punishment is 1,000 hours of community service. The kid's lawyer may ask the judge to consider all the charity work that the child has already done as time served. And if the judge agrees, then he may count some of that charity work towards his mandated hours. Or another scenario might be that a friend or multiple friends ask the judge if they can do community service hours and a apply it to their friend's punishment. This is the concept of indulgences. An indulgence is not forgiveness of sin. It's a relief of the temporal punishment that one receives because of their sin. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul tells the church at Corinth that they need to examine themselves before taking communion. He even says that some of them have gotten sick and even died because they're profaning the body and blood of Christ. This is why the Catholic Church teaches that you shouldn't take communion if you've committed a mortal sin and haven't gone to confession. So let's say that I committed a mortal sin, but I took communion before going to confession. Not only is my mortal sin a sin, but so is taking communion prior to confession. And let's say that God punishes me by allowing me to get the flu. When I go to confession, I'm going to confess those sins to get right with God. But I can also ask to receive an indulgence to relieve me of the temporal punishment, which in this case is the flu. Or maybe I avoid getting sick in the first place because God has applied someone else's charity to my sake. Maybe a friend has been praying for me and God applied those charitable prayers for my benefit. By doing so, I'm making a withdrawal from the church's treasury of charity. So exactly how does one obtain an indulgence? Catholics can obtain indulgences by completing certain pious acts or acts of charity laid out by the church. In addition to those acts, one must fulfill four requirements. First, they must have a complete and wholehearted detachment from all sin of any kind, 
even venial sin. Secondly, they must make a valid sacramental confession. Third, they must receive Holy Communion in the state of grace. And fourth, they must pray for the intentions of the Pope. In the show notes, I've linked to a comprehensive explanation by Father Edward McNamara about ways to obtain an indulgence. Basically, the church has laid out specific tasks that one can do in order to receive an indulgence and have relief from temporal punishment. For example, on Divine Mercy Sunday, which is the Sunday after Easter, the church offers a plenary indulgence to those who go to confession and go to church in a spirit that is completely detached from the affection for a sin, even a venial sin. They must also participate in the prayers held in honor of divine mercy, such as the Divine Mercy Chaplet. A plenary indulgence, by the way, is a complete erasure of all punishment for sins committed, whereas a partial indulgence is a commutation or reduction of punishment. A good analogy is what we see in our legal system. A panel of individuals known as a parole board may decide that an inmate has been rehabilitated and no longer needs to serve time in prison. They may completely cancel the rest of the sentence, or they or a judge may decide to reduce someone's sentence based on a variety of factors. Not only can the living obtain indulgence, but indulgences can also be provided for those in purgatory. For example, when you attend Mass, you may see a sign or hear the priest say that the Mass is being offered for a specific person that has passed away. Likewise, prior to praying the rosary, I can offer it up for the souls in purgatory. We're going to talk a lot more about this in our next episode, which is about praying for the dead. Here's an important question. How can the church just decide that you can do something and get an indulgence and commute God's punishment? If I put my Protestant hat back on, I'm like, wait, what? This is so bizarre. But what you have to understand is the authority given to the church, something I talked about in episode 39 on the apostolic succession. Jesus gave his apostles the authority to bind and loose, to forgive and withhold forgiveness. We do not believe that authority was intended for only one generation of church leaders, but was meant to be passed down in order to preserve the church. And so the Pope, as the vicar of Christ, the head leader of the church on earth, may declare certain indulgences are available. The particular indulgence may be available at any time, or it may be a specific time-related indulgence like Divine Mercy Sunday. So let's do a recap. When we sin, we sever our relationship with God. When we confess our sins, God mercifully forgives us, but he may still discipline us by giving us a temporal punishment. Indulgences are a kind favor that either partially reduces or fully eliminates the temporal punishment for our sins. Indulgences are not related to the forgiveness of sin because good works do not earn forgiveness. It's when we confess that God forgives us. However, good works can provide relief from our discipline. Indulgences are the church's treasury of acts of holiness, and we can withdraw indulgences and obtain them for ourselves, as well as make deposits of indulgences and offer them for others, including those souls in purgatory. And by the church's apostolic authority, it can declare specific holy acts for which an indulgence can be obtained. In addition to those specific indulgences, we can always offer up any holy act and ask God to use it for one that is currently experiencing punishment. Let me switch gears now and talk about the Protestant Reformation and what was going on with indulgences that made Martin Luther so incensed. First, Pope Leo X was an extravagant spender. He was a patron of the arts and spent the church's entire treasury in eight short years. His desire was to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, the mother church of Catholicism, but he didn't have the money to do so. In 1517, he declared that anyone who donated for the new construction would receive an indulgence. Because this was a time before phones and email, 
Pope Leo X sent individuals to carry out the mission. A Dominican monk by the name of Johann Tetzel was sent to Germany. There's been debate as to what Tetzel actually taught. On one hand, there were people coming up to Martin Luther saying that they had paid a donation to receive an indulgence, and not only was their punishment forgiven, but the indulgence forgave them of both past and future sins. Of course, this is in deep discord with what the Catholic Church teaches on forgiveness and indulgences. So you can imagine that Martin Luther, being a Catholic scholar, was horrified by this notion that people thought they could pay money and have their sins wiped away. Did Johann Tetzel actually teach this? Some scholars believe this was actually a myth, either a misunderstanding by those receiving the indulgences who just didn't understand the theology behind it, or by people trying to smear him. Johann Tetzel went on to receive degrees stemming from his work in refuting Martin Luther on the doctrine of indulgences. It doesn't seem likely that he would receive those accreditations from the Catholic Church if he misrepresented the Church's positions. However, we do know of a grave error that Tetzel made, and that is he gave indulgences for the souls in purgatory in exchange for a financial donation and nothing else, no act of contrition or confession. In Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, his 27th dispute with the Catholic Church addresses this, quote, They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks in the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory, end quote. This was in contrast to the church's teaching on indulgences. You can't just buy an indulgence. To receive an indulgence, one must not only do the work of charity, but they also must have a complete and wholehearted detachment from sin of any kind, make a valid sacramental confession, receive Holy Communion in a state of grace, and pray for the intentions of the Pope. The Ecumenical Council of Trent, which occurred in the mid-16th century, was the Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation, or we call it the Counter-Reformation. They issued a declaration on indulgences, which I've included in the show notes. Here's a summary. Indulgences are given by Christ for the good of the Church. The Church has the power and authority to grant them. They need to be used in moderation and with discipline. Any abuses, such as the commercialization of indulgences, must be abolished. Even though indulgences are often misunderstood, this is not a reason to get rid of them or withhold indulgences. And should abuses or misunderstandings arise, this was to be reported to the bishops and then to the Pope. Ultimately, the Council of Trent desired that, quote, the gift of holy indulgences be dispensed to all the faithful, piously, holily, and incorruptly, end quote. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.